Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with Daniel Larison, who, if you haven't checked it out yet, publishes a very important substack called Eunomia. His writing is fresh and often challenges the foreign policy status quo in Washington, so I hope you meander over there to Eunomia and give it a try. Today, we will have the pleasure of talking to professor and author Nikolai Petro about Russia and Ukraine and his new book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution. But first, let's talk about some new developments in the nuclear weapons talks between Russia and the U.S., Russia announced last week that it would postpone arms control talks after officials had high hopes for resuming the bilateral talks and subsequent negotiations for a follow-on to the new Strategic Arms Reductions Treaty, also known as New START. Uh, This treaty remains a crucial avenue to maintain stability between the world's two largest nuclear powers. The United States and Russia were supposed to meet under the auspices of New START, um, under the New Start's Bilateral Consultative Commission, which last met in 2021. The first START treaty was signed way back in 1991, and New Start was signed in 2009. Um, basically, the treaty restricts the number of deployed strategic nuclear weapons to 1,550 each. It was extended last year into 2026, but these talks are very important. They were supposed to be a signal that despite the Ukraine war, the U.S. and Russia still were maintaining a channel of communication for Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, but Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova said that these talks could not uh, be removed from the geopolitical realities, meaning the war, and had declared a postponement without a new date announced, um, basically uh, and a surprise to everyone. So, so Dan, can you walk us through why these talks were important to begin with, uh, why a new, new start is uh, critical to um, just to peace, you know, writ large, um, but also to the U.S.-Russia relationship, and um, you know, any thoughts on on whether or not this is a a, a hiccup or a, a broader issue with um, you know these talks um, moving forward at all? Uh, sure, Kelly. Thanks. Uh, so the the main issue with the the current round of talks. Uh, is to get back to a point where there will actually be verification teams, inspection teams operating in both countries. Uh, and th- those inspections have essentially been uh, been canceled or have been postponed, uh, both because of the pandemic, uh, because of pandemic restrictions, and then because of obviously tensions over the war over the last uh, ten months. Uh, so the the issue that uh, we were, they were trying to resolve. Uh, is the, the mechanism by which the, the inspection teams would be allowed to resume their, their work. And of course, the, the inspections are an essential part of any arms control treaty, because without those verification measures, all you have to go by is the other government's word to say that they're complying with the restrictions contained in the treaty. The, the advantage of the new start inspections, that like the, the inspections that existed before under the original start, uh, was that it gave... Uh, both governments' confidence that the other was uh, fully abiding by uh, the terms of the treaty. And so uh, not being able to conduct those inspections has been a huge hurdle in actually keeping the treaty uh, in force. Um, So the the treaty is still technically alive, but it's not actually working the way it's supposed to. 
And so they were, they were hoping to meet in Cairo to, to resolve that problem. And now the, the Russians have chosen to use those talks uh, or attempt to use it as leverage as a way of pressuring Washington to change its position uh, with respect to providing military assistance to Ukraine. The, the, the good news is that the talks were only postponed, not canceled outright. But the, the troubling thing is that they're, they're attaching these conditions of um, making military aid to Ukraine a stumbling block to continuing negotiations. And obviously we know that the Biden administration and Congress are not going to approve of cutting back or cutting off military assistance to Ukraine while the war is still going on. So this is a condition that essentially says uh, the negotiations are not going to go forward at all uh, for the foreseeable future. And so that's the that's a real problem for keeping New START uh, functioning. And of course, it, it closes off any possibility of negotiating follow-on treaty, which is essential uh, because, as you said, it will expire in 2026 despite the renewal from last year. Uh, we only renewed it for five years. And as, as of right now, there will be nothing to take its place. And so the, re- the reason that this has to be preserved, or the reason that the treaty needs to survive, is that it creates a degree of stability and predictability and certainty in U.S.-Russian relations in terms of how many weapons both sides have and how many, bo- how many weapons both sides have deployed. Uh, in the absence of that, uh, it would be very easy to slip back into a full-on arms race uh, because both sides will mistrust the other and will assume that they have to build up more to counter the the you know possible threat uh, from the other side, and we'll be right back into the depths of the Cold War at that point. Uh, and, it, and it's important to note that there have there have been arms control treaties of one kind or another going all the way back into the seventies. So, looking at a time when we wouldn't have any functioning arms control treaties in force. Uh, puts us in a situation that we have not been in in my lifetime uh, and, and in the lifetime of many of us, uh, and, and certainly not a situation that we've been in for more than 50 years. So it's, uh, it's very concerning that the Russians are, are playing games with the treaty. Uh, it's also uh, worrying to consider that even if the Russians weren't doing this, it would be very difficult to get a new arms control treaty negotiated and ratified under current conditions. Because of course, I mean, any any dealings with the Russians right now are so toxic uh, in in terms of the politics of it in Washington that uh, it would be very difficult to get one through, even if the Russians were fully cooperating. Um, one of the points that Connor Murray makes out makes in his new piece for Responsible Statecraft in the last week is that Russia's move here is actually incredibly self defeating because right now they don't have the resources to invest in a new arms race. Uh, because of the losses that they've already incurred in the war. So they they stand to lose more than the demise of the treaty than we do. And so it, it, it really is a, a foolish move on their part. Um, but obviously both sides stand to lose a great deal, and, and the entire world stands to lose uh, a great deal if that stability that we've enjoyed for many decades goes away. Um, Derek Johnson of Global Zero uh, said recently, uh, losing this treaty will set us on a path to nuclear chaos, where binding constraints, transparency are gone, and voluntary restraint is weak or non-existent. We'd be flying blind into an arms race. The world is too dangerous for the nuclear weapons we have, let alone more of them. And unfortunately, between uh, the, the impending demise, possibly, of, of arms control and uh, the buildup of China's nuclear arsenal, there are lots of political forces in this country in favor of 
a massive expansion of our nuclear arsenal, uh, which is both incredibly wasteful and and incredibly dangerous. And so, unfortunately, if if arms control does go away, we are going to see a new arms race, and it's going to be uh, even more dangerous than the last one with the Soviets, because in this case, we will have both the Russians and the Chinese building up their forces uh, at the same time that we are. And so uh, it, it's really uh, important to try to, to salvage the last of, of the arms control treaties. And so I, I'm hoping that the Biden administration can get through to the Russians and, and stress the importance of that and try to get them to, to compartmentalize arms control from these other uh, issues. Because if we don't, uh, we're all in a lot of trouble. You keep talking about the importance of New START. Can you set the table in terms of like how important it is? So, so I mentioned that the first uh, New START or the first START one um, had gone into effect and during the or at the end of the Cold War. How much success have we seen from these START treaty or that START treaty and um, the inspections and drawdowns? Ever since, I mean, do we, we we must have seen a quite a bit of reduction in these strategic warheads. Uh, absolutely, the, these treaties were responsible for uh, huge reductions in the the stock in, in terms of the, the deployed warheads and, and delivery vehicles of both sides um, over the last thirty years. Uh, and and it's it's been cut all the way down, as you said, to, to fifteen hundred and fifty warheads, seven hundred delivery vehicles. That's that's. Uh, uh, a massive reduction. I don't. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head uh, in terms of what they were at the end of the Cold War, but we're looking at at massive reductions uh, that have taken place under both Start and New Start, um, as well as the, the Sort Treaty under the Bush administration. So these are uh, huge improvements, uh, and and all of that is at risk of going away if we. Uh, if we don't find a way to keep the treaty alive. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm, and I'm afraid, and I know this has been written about, I think Stephen Wertheim had a piece over the weekend in the North, in New York times about this distant connect uh, in today's generation, or, or, or at least the citizenry today from the real visceral fears of nuclear war, say in the eighties, when I was little, uh, from the 1950s and the in six, early 60s, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when my parents were little and they were doing the drills under the desks, is there enough political pressure or even press, public pressure on on our government at least uh, to to push for more arms control, or are we so removed from the fear? of nuclear weapons that we're not even really thinking about it anymore. And that's allowing these things to, to wane and die. Well, I, I think that is part of the problem because there, there is no longer the, the same consensus that there used to be in favor of arms control across the parties. Uh, arms control is, is essentially a dead letter as far as most people in the Republican party are concerned. They, they see it primarily in terms of the restrictions that it imposes on us and not in terms of the stability that it provides in U.S.-Russian relations. And so it is a, there, there's a real political problem there. Uh, and I think there's also uh, the added problem that a lot of arms control treaties were only negotiated successfully at times when there were successful thaws in relations with Moscow. Uh, and, and 
And we saw that again with New Start. Uh, it was only during the so-called reset period that New Start was able to be uh, negotiated and ratified. Uh, usually, when U.S.-Russian relations are bad, and we actually need the arms control treaties more, there is a a great difficulty in in actually being able to sell that to people in Congress and in the country. Um, so it's it's a, a real uh, a real predicament. very proud to welcome to Crashing the War Party today, Nikolai Petro. He is the Sylvia Chanley Professor of Peace Studies and Nonviolence and Professor of Political Science at the University of Rhode Island. He also served as the U.S. State Department Special Assistant Assistant for Policy on the Soviet Union under President George H.W. Bush. He is the author of the new book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution. And it will be available on the 17th. I'm so sorry, Nikolai. Is that right? December 17th? Yeah. Awesome. Great. So please look for that. Uh, Welcome to the show, Nikolai. Uh, Nice to be here. Fantastic. So I know, I mean, this is a very, um, I would say, a colorful, maybe even provocative title for a book of what Greek tragedy can teach us about conflict resolution and tying that to the tragedy of Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about and how classical Greek tragedy can teach us or what it can teach us about conflict resolution in regards to this particularly fraught war in Ukraine? Sure. Of uh, fifty page, 50, fifty word summary of the book would go something <laughs> like this: uh, the tragedy of Ukraine. In the tragedy of Ukraine, I argue that the conflict has deep domestic roots. Reconciliation will require untangling these roots and embracing a change of heart, which the Greeks called catharsis. And my book argues that classical Greek tragedy can assist in doing this because it was the exact function that tragedy used to perform in Athenian society. So there you have it, (laughs) without going into elaborate detail about the Dionysian rituals. (laughs) And uh, then the big question becomes, okay, I, I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Classical Greek tragedy was fine for societies that were no more than 20,000 people, and everybody was pretty much forced to attend these um, <clears throat> biannual cathartic rituals. We don't have anything like that today, but I argue that there is something comparable. Uh, that has worked in over 45 countries for the past 50 years to help resolve these kind of um, <clears throat> these these kind of painful uh, encounters in society that that dissolve social bonds, and it is um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, hmm. which in my final chapter I look at three. Pr- typical or very well-known examples, uh, South Africa, Guatemala, and Spain, 
suggest that they each have something to, to that would be helpful for Ukraine. And again, just think about the process and what it and how it would be able to contribute to healing within a society, which is something that Ukraine certainly needs, but to some extent, all society needs, all societies need. How do we get to that point, though? I mean, we're looking at a potential stalemate in the fighting going on. We see President Zelensky uh, being very forthright that he believes that Russia should completely uh, leave the country, even Crimea, which it annexed in 2014 and considers Russian. We have uh, Putin that shows no interest and 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 in um conceding any of the territories taken at, at by 2014 and beyond in this current war so how do we get to a place where there actually would be truth and reconciliation how long do you think that that's actually going to take and do you see any movement towards um a diplomatic track at right now today So I see this conflict as a multi-layered one. I've never seen it exclusively in terms of either an east-west conflict or a conflict between Russia and Ukraine, or even exclusively a conflict within Ukraine between its eastern and uh, western halves. Um, But it entails uh, all three of those at different times over the past 150 years, each of those phases has been acute, has become acute. So uh, my bottom line is that the most important aspect of this conflict is the one that is currently least talked about, and it is the domestic conflict. Mm -hmm. Why do I consider it the most important aspect? Uh, of the conflict uh, in and around and over Ukraine, because without, uh, let me put it this way, if this conflict were resolved, the other two would not exist because the conflict, it is the conflict within Ukraine and the different parties within Ukraine that appeal to external parties for assistance to vanquish the other side that has made this an internal, an international conflict. So the most important way to really bring peace to Ukraine itself, and my priority has always been, since I started writing about this and looking at this, figuring out what is best for Ukraine itself, not as what is best for America, not as what is is best for Russia or external parties, but what is best for Ukraine itself. And Ukraine needs to undergo uh, a true cathartic social process and recognize that the people that are so easily labeled as enemy others within their country, that's a path to endless civil war. Yeah. And we've seen this ongoing again as I point out in my book for more than a century. It's time to recognize that we need to get beyond this and begin the process of healing which begins with dialogue. But dialogue cannot be engaged without catharsis, which is the emptying of the soul of of hate 
for the other person so that you can begin to recognize not only the humanity of your opponent, but to recognize yourself in that enemy. Then uh, there's hope for the future. So let me reframe that my question then, and we'll take Russia out of the equation. How do we get to a point um, where we can have this reconciliation? I, I'm, I'm imagining without having read your book yet that there you're talking about the different um, ethnic groups within Ukraine. Uh, you have a government in Ukraine that has basically um, de-Russified de many parts in the eastern part of, 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 of Ukraine, or at least attempted to by imposing language controls, for example. Now, now we're hearing about um, Ukrainian uh, Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches uh, being fingered for, for being disloyal. I would imagine, how do we get to the point where we have this reconciliation when you have a government that seems to be led uh, by not only Zelensky, but um, certain nationalistic Ukrainian forces that are not going, that don't seem to be open uh, to such reconciliation. Do you see a pathway there to get to that point? And what would it look like? Over the course of the past eight years, there have been concerted efforts inside Ukraine to develop this common framework. And I highlight the extraordinary efforts made by President Zelensky's former professional colleague and friend, Sergei Sivocha, to establish a um, a dialogue, an, a, 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 a pan-national dialogue between the regions of the East and the West. I hasten to uh, point out that this is not an ethnic divide. This is not even truly a, uh, a linguistic or a religious divide uh, because all the populations in Ukraine, Ukrainians, have always managed to coexist uh, with this uh, amount of diversity uh, within their population. The problems that have arisen have been exacerbated, uh, as I think you correctly point out, by the ideology of nationalism which has been embraced fairly recently, but uh, it has uh, an intellectual pedigree in, um, among Ukrainian elites. But we are literally talking about, uh, as um, former Ukrainian President Leonid Kravchuk uh, argued, about an effort of the uh, four regions of Western Ukraine, historically known as Galicia, to impose its regional identity as the national identity of all of Ukraine. And that this effort, he argued, and his successors have always argued, would lead to the exacerbation of tensions. And that's exactly what has happened. 
So the solution, again, is not a simple one, but it is one that asks or would require, rather, every Ukrainian to look inside themselves and ask whether they can find it in their heart to coexist with other Ukrainians, whatever language they speak, whatever religion they embrace, and whatever culture they feel most comfortable with, as long as it is within the context of an overarching Ukrainian civic identity. And what I think needs to happen ultimately for the region, the, the, the nation of Ukraine to uh, uh, establish uh, a long-term social harmony is the replacement of arch nationalism with this kind of patriotic civic identity which is tolerant of cultural diversity. Quick, uh, I just had a quick follow-up to that. How difficult has the invasion of Russia and the ensuing war made the prospects of that kind of dialogue happening? As there, are much, I, I would imagine there's much more tension uh, between uh, the different groups than there were, say, in February. <laughs> well, I, I haven't been... To Ukraine since the end of last year. But I do keep in touch uh, with friends there. And I would say that, again, the official discourse of the government is, of course, nationalistic and highly uh, geared toward military victory. Um, the question that I am asking and that I hear people in Ukraine also asking is what kind of society do we want to establish after the end of the fighting? Because it seems to me totally unrealistic to expect that somewhere no less than a third of the country be expected to give up their cultural, religious, uh, and to some extent even ethnic identity. Uh, whereas in modern societies in Europe that, and uh, to some extent the United States, upon which Ukraine is trying to model itself, this is not a requirement. As a matter of fact, it is almost expected that alongside civic patriotism and loyalty to uh, the nation and the government, in exchange, the government will allow for a considerable degree of regional diversity and individual freedoms. It's that balance that has been notably lacking in Ukraine since 1991 and has become, if anything, more acute since 2014. Bert, uh, thanks for coming on the show, uh, Nikolai. Uh, we appreciate having you on. Uh, you wrote recently for Responsible Statecraft about the tragedy of Crimea in particular, uh, and it got me to thinking about how uh, the status of Crimea might be uh, settled uh, once the fighting comes to an end. 
what do you think the status of Crimea should be in any final peace settlement once once there is one to be discussed? Uh, and how would that be decided? Would it be by plebiscite or some other mechanism? Well, one can imagine a lot of diverse scenarios, but all of them run into the hard reality that nations that have uh, conquered territory and um, absorbed it into their own, especially powerful nations like Russia, the likelihood of them renegotiating that status strikes me as close to nil. So if I were uh, approaching this from a realistic perspective, I would have to say that would be the starting point. And therefore, the status of Crimea, the status of Ukraine, and Russia's status in a pan-European concert in which, from which it expects security guarantees as well, uh, would all have to be part of some very elaborate and well-thought-out um, uh, settlement, settlement agreement, a broad settlement agreement of the kind uh, really we haven't seen in Europe since uh, since the end of World War II, perhaps, uh, and, and more reminiscent actually of the of the great settlements um, uh, of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, for example, uh, that that had to essentially redraw boundaries and uh, establish um, new patterns of relations, especially among great states. So I, it's a daunting task for me. Thankfully, I haven't been asked to, to, to think about it. But from a realistic perspective, I think the parameters within which this settlement is likely to occur is one in which Russia uh, is not going to give up territory, very likely, uh, and uh, uh, would see any attempt to force it to do that as a threat to its vital interest, that it will respond with devastating force. It respond to with devastating force. Right. Well, that, that kind of puts it off the table. Right. And that leads to my next question, uh, which is, how concerned are you that when attempts to retake Crimea uh, militarily uh, might lead to that greater escalation by Russian forces, uh, and, and and do you think that might even include the use of nuclear weapons? So, as I understand uh, Russian nuclear doctrine, it uh, prohibits the use of nuclear weapons except in the event of a retaliatory strike of uh, of a similar type. That is to say. That would attempt to be, be it, that would engage weapons of mass destruction, or secondarily, that would endanger uh, the survival of the Russian state. So uh, I therefore don't see anything that Ukraine could do in Ukraine as leading to that. Yeah. But. At the same time, there are 
multiple levels of escalation. And there is beyond the escalation that would directly involve Russia and Ukraine, there are interested bystanders, which are NATO and the United States. So the real question that we have to ask ourselves is if and at what point the United States would be willing to commit its military forces to the defense of what it cons- what America considers Ukrainian territory. And I don't see a very serious discussion of this, but it is really the only, uh, to my mind, the quintessential uh, question for military strategists both in Ukraine and Russia. Well, I think we've run out of time, but I, I I feel like we've only scratched the surface, particularly on um, the, the tenets of your book and why I'm so glad uh, that you're, you've joined us today is that you've taken the discussion of this war to another level, a level that I don't feel has been given ample sunlight because it's become such a geopolitical issue. Um, you know, we're in the United States and we're interested in, in how, uh, Washington has responded to the war, uh, what our relationship to Russia is, um, what the future of NATO is, you know, the history of NATO and how that might have exasper- exacerbated, uh, the, the dynamics leading to the war. But we don't often talk about the real organic, um, nuts and bolts of what the, 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 the disputes are there. And I feel like I, I mean, I entirely agree until those are resolved and there is this catharsis that, uh, this war and any other future conflicts, um, that may arise will be going on for some time. So I would love to have you on again, or would you like to add to that? Well, if I have a second, um, we talk a lot about the prospects for negotiation. Mm-hmm. But to my mind, that's putting the cart before the horse. Before we can have negotiations, yes, uh, the technical component of that is a resolution on the ground that everybody recognizes as more or less definitive in terms of military uh, outcomes. But secondarily, it also requires that very catharsis that I'm talking about, because people can't talk to each other unless they see each other as human beings. And that's still absent on so many levels and with so many of the actors, both within Ukraine and outside. Well, thank you, Nikolai Petro. Please, anybody listening to this needs to check out his book to be released next week, The Tragedy of Ukraine. Thank you. And please come on again. We need to talk more about this. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.